0: copy you in on internet stories from around the world. Hi everybody, welcome back to BCC. I'm Shayna. And I'm Paige. And we're going to start off the show with some hot topics. Before we go to the scheduled hot topic, I just want to say this other hot topic. Yeah. What does that mean where people are like, I was today years old when I learned that Ring around the posy, is that ring? No, ring around the Rosie. Rosie,
1: yeah. You know that song? Yeah. Okay, that song. I think, I think I know. It's actually the going bubonic plague. This. Yeah. Did you know? I didn't know. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so many of these kids' songs are about very interesting things. I don't remember. I recall at some point hearing a few and learning that they were about racism, and I was like, shocker. Um, but quite the many of them are about very interesting things
0: about death and the plague.
1: I was like, what? That's what I've been thinking. Unfortunately, (laughs) unfortunately, it's like, oh, fun times. Not so fun.
0: Oh my God. Okay. Anyway, what is the actual hot topic today?
1: Our actual hot topic is based on a question you asked me recently. And you said, is Wikipedia not a source? And like hearts, a source for for facts yes for facts. So from is wikipedia and facts a source for knowledge in fact And my heart skipped a beat because the golden rule in colleges in america is wikipedia is not a source they like drill it into your head that it's okay not but a i source. went to
0: college a lot earlier than you before the internet was really taken off like that so like that was not, we didn't learn that. That's Wikipedia, cool. I don't even, when did Wikipedia start? I feel like. Because I think it was after I graduated from college or Probably. it was very early days.
1: And yeah. I feel like someone should have sent out like an alumni update. <laughs> <laughs> no, you asked it and immediately I was like, this is like a cardinal okay. sin, how dare you? In my defense, on
0: Wikipedia, and this is my understanding of how Wikipedia works and this is what we're going to get into a little bit. Yeah. But in my, my understanding is that It is edited by a number of people Mm -hmm. and that as collectively being edited means that the truth and what is factual will emerge. Because when I think about other sources, let's Mm -hmm. say a newspaper article or, you know, some other literature
1: or that kind of thing.
0: You're having multiple people look at something. You're having verifiable facts. And from that, we're going to say, yes, this then is truth and this is knowledge. And we're going to use this as factual information. So I think Wikipedia on some level, this is my understanding again, and this is what you're going to tell me, whether or not I'm wrong, is that that is what was happening on Wikipedia. Is that not what's happening?
1: That's how it started. But then it became. So what you said is if enough people verify the information, then it could Mm -hmm. be true. Yes. is that is that wrong to think if a I bunch of a people come of together, if mm-hmm. a bunch of people come together and then they say, OK, well, Shana is actually 80 years old. Like, right. Let's say you have a Wikipedia page and you also have a group of haters, like 70 mm-hmm. haters, you know, mm-hmm. let's say. And they're mm-hmm. like, let's make Shayna 80 years old and all 70 of them edit your Wikipedia page. Then it it reflects that. So we've seen that happen with several celebrities and the exact examples are escaping my memory, but several celebrities have had their Wikipedia change just for like funnies or LOLs because groups of people on the internet, i.e. Twitter mostly, have said, oh, wouldn't it be funny if we change the celebrities thing to whatever, right? So celebrities have gotten roasted on the internet and people have changed their Wikipedia to say they died by roasting, right? So it becomes a space for the possibility of misinformation because it's edited collectively and there's no vetting.
0: See, this is so tricky because I think in the spirit of Wikipedia and what I understand, theoretically, that makes sense to me. But if people are using the technology for evil purposes, then the technology becomes evil. I don't know. I just am really, I'm sad to hear that, that it's being used that way.
1: Is there nothing they can do to prevent that? I'm not sure what Wikipedia can do, but I know what I do because okay, I tell me, what do you do? If you are listening to this and you work at any of the universities I've gone to, you've already conferred my degree upon me and you can't take it back. So I use Wikipedia, but <laughs> As a in a, yes, but in a very different way. Wikipedia cites other sources. So I begin my research on anything on the Wikipedia page because Mm -hmm. what you'll find on the Wikipedia page is links to other sources of things. So you have Mm -hmm. the blue links and I actually read the footnotes from Wikipedia because that's what I'm interested in. I'm not interested in what's actually on the Wikipedia page because anybody can put that there. But the links that would be there, so the footnotes that are there, that's where I'm then going to verify the information and say, oh, this is also on, the World Bank website or it's on whatever website. I mean, we could also get into the very meta of what is true information. But, you know, I go to the World Bank site or I go to some research or a book or something else and say, okay, well, this is true information. But I always start my research on Wikipedia.
0: Well, also because Wikipedia, generally, anytime I'm searching something on Google, it's like one of the first, if not the first return results. Always. Do we
1: know why that is? That's a great question. And if any one of our listeners know, please reach out to us and let us know, because I actually please don't do. know why it's the first one that populated. Is there the some- only, my guess would be because that one page has several other pages linked to it. So maybe it's like a popularity of pages kind of thing. But well, I don't- that
0: is how Google works. I mean, Google works based on the number of other times that that page shows up on the internet so if your page yeah. is referenced or shows up or links to it show up more then you're potentially going to return higher on the results page
1: yeah um, i mean and then i got to thinking about wikipedia and like you said how it was edited and then i realized that we don't have a wikipedia page we meaning the foundation, uh, the foundation yes the internet society foundation does not have a wikipedia page just yet and I was like, oh, maybe I could, you know, like log in, create an account and try to make one. And did you make one? How it, did, what happened? I, it did not go well. I Why? do not, I do not know how to code. There's even a handy dandy code cheat sheet. So if you really want to create a Wikipedia page, there is a code cheat sheet that Wikipedia provides. And I tried using minute. that. You mean in like a HTML way. code? What kind of code? Yes, it looked like HTML code. So
0: it's basically you're making your own website page.
1: Yes. And I failed miserably. Because they're not.
0: Okay. So that's something I did learn in school.
1: See, see how things work. I did
0: learn HTML code in, I don't know, whenever it was that we got like internet or those kinds of things. Yeah. We learned that in school. Like it was very, it wasn't in depth, but we definitely had like a week of learn how to do HTML. and like create websites. I remember doing that and like colors and all that, yeah.
1: I feel like I've also been on very, not internet excluded, but I went into college studying biology. And then I made the transition to the social sciences. And if you've ever known a social scientist, we still take notes with pen and pencils.
0: But this was in my On public paper. school days. This was not even in my undergraduate. No, this is before that we were doing that this because the really internet was a new
1: thing. Yeah. And they were maybe like, because it was, was a new page. thing because I went to a very well funded private school in New York and there was no coding no class. Maybe now they do it since it's becoming way more popular. I think that's what it was. You were at the beginning of it and now it's becoming popular. So there's a need for it when I was kind of in the middle of like In the middle. I mean, I guess you can, I guess you can't, whatever the internet's there. Interesting. Yeah, interesting stuff.
0: Maybe I should. Well, yes, you should learn. Everyone should learn. But I'm, I'm also sad to hear that you have to know how to code or write HTML code in order to, or I don't know, I'm saying it's HTML, it may not be, um, but that you have to do that in order to contribute to Wikipedia. I would think it would be a little more accessible.
1: I, I thought so as well. I thought it was just going to be a type up kind of thing and it was not. So do we say that's a barrier? Is that a barrier? Yes, it would absolutely be a barrier. Because I think there are people who have knowledge in specific areas that don't necessarily have the kind of tech skills to do that, myself included. Um, and I felt excluded from my contributions. And I was really gonna write some great things about us and Beyonce. And I just <laughs> I couldn't. And that made me a little sad. Okay. Well, the lesson is
0: maybe, what's our takeaway here? Maybe we send something to Wikipedia because I do appreciate Wikipedia, but I, I it so. makes me sad that we can't access things. And it also makes me sad that they're able to change. If you have enough people who have evil thinking or nasty thinking that they can go and change things on someone's page, that, that makes me really sad. So I, those are two things. I'm going to, I'm going to send an email. That's what I want to do. We should
1: follow up this Wikipedia on that
0: one. <laughs> yeah. All right. We'll we'll keep you posted. We'll let you know how it goes. Coming up is an interview with Jessica Clark that I conducted at the launch of our Building Opportunities and Leveraging Technology Grant Program here at the Internet Society Foundation. Jessica was a really great thought partner for me in helping to design the grant program, and it's currently open, uh, although at the the airing of this, it may be closed, but we may be nearing uh, making awards for that grant program. But I just want to share with you and let you know a little bit about how we're thinking about innovation and the future of the internet in 2030. Have a listen. So Jessica, again, to go back in time, maybe you can talk about sort of what your first computer was. Do you remember?
2: Yeah, it was a (laughs) TRS-80. I've been on the internet. I was thinking about it this morning. Three-fifths of my life. Um, So it had that little carrot prompt. There were no pictures, and it was a big boxy, you know, behemoth. Yes. Was it a green screen? Did it have a green screen? It was either green or orange. I can't remember which, but uh, it wasn't pretty.
0: (laughs) And, and how did it connect to the internet? Or was that the computer that
2: you used to connect to the internet? Eventually. Uh, it had one of those screechy modems. I think we might have even had CompuServe or AOL. I can't remember. But um, yes, it was a, a loud and slow process. Nice.
0: And what do you remember other than it being loud and slow? Do you remember other things about your first experience on the internet and what that was like?
2: I mean, I think just, you know, the promise of it, the idea that we could connect to people in other countries, the, you know, this sense, I was a real nerd. So this sense of like libraries at my fingertips. Um, it was really, you know, I got really fascinated immediately. And then in college, I started studying some of the early, uh, they're called MUDs, early online communities. MUDs. What, what's the MUD? dimensions. Oh, I've never heard this term, a MUD. So, yes, imagine, uh, you know, second life or VR chat, but just a line of text. Just text. OK, got it. Awesome.
0: And now, I mean, I guess if you think about sort of the evolution of that, and I I won't ask you for what year that was that you were um, doing these things, but I, I imagine it was 80s, 90s, sort of before the millennium uh, turned the millennium. But I wonder if you think about sort of the history of that and where we're moving forward, what do you think connecting to the Internet would look like? Let's say in 2030.
2: So a lot of the people that I'm working with now, I edit this thing called Immerse.News, are talking about the metaverse. And that means a combo of augmented reality and fully immersive um, experiences where you might even have like a persistent avatar that carries you across many different environments um, or a persistent identity. I think uh, that's one vision. But the truth is it's going to be really unevenly distributed and people are going to be getting on in different ways for all kinds of reasons at all kinds of levels. So we don't really know. Of course, we have lots of sci-fi to tell us what it might look like, but the the reality is much crunchier and, and more nuanced. Yeah. And I think the point about sci-fi and sort of how much um,
0: our creative communities influence the actual direction of technology. I don't know if people were aware, but I saw just um, this past weekend that William Shatner, who played Captain Kirk on um, Star Trek, actually went to space, which is really crazy to me. But really, to see how fiction and sort of these things influence and are able to drive innovation and, and our march towards the future, I think is really interesting and important. And one of the things that we tried to to pull out in this call, which we'll, we'll talk a bit more about later, who do you think is still not connected in 2030? Who's still not on the internet?
2: Well, we, we asked a bunch of people who are involved with the foundation this question, and they had various interesting answers. I thought one of the most interesting ones was people who are afraid of the internet and they don't think they don't want to be on it. So part of the, part of the challenge for getting people on the internet is making it safer, making it more trustworthy, making it less hate-filled. Uh, so that's one thing. Another is, you know, folks who can't afford it. We think we're not necessarily going to have a global internet. So people who are in countries where, you know, they're blocked from access. People who maybe live in places that are still difficult to connect Mm -hmm. so those are some of the things that we heard when we were asking around
0: yeah i mean i think one of the the things recently with the the facebook outage that happened i think two weeks ago now maybe um was there there was a really interesting response to that and people were like oh the whole internet has shut down and it was only because (laughs) it was like well no the whole internet is still it's still working it's just uh facebook and because you know Facebook and its services are so ubiquitous and, and so pervasive in our societies that when that goes out, you, you sort of assume that the entire Internet is out. And so I think about when we talk about who's still not online, it's like, yeah, well, it's if someone's entire experience is of the Internet is through Facebook and its products. If Facebook doesn't exist, if there are uh, legal ramifications, if there are antitrust situations that emerge, we really may see some some interesting things that happen Um you know, for people's ability to access and what they're able to access.
2: Yeah, so it was really profound in Latin America. Like large swaths of the commerce had to shut down because WhatsApp wasn't working. Having a government or a corporation primarily be your choke point is is dangerous. And so part of what we're hoping to address with this grant initiative is other ways to get people on the internet that are not just cheaper, but more accessible.
0: Definitely. I think the other the other thing you mentioned that's really interesting that we think about a lot here at Internet Society Foundation is around infrastructure too, and how um, the hardware of the internet and having um, being able to access that and the cost of that is sometimes or oftentimes a barrier. And so some there was some interesting discussion when we were going around and and talking to people and interviewing and just sort of workshopping this whole program the conversation around reusing older technology and places um, to sort of offset the accessibility challenges. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the question is, instead of this model, this consumer model of obsolescence, how can, how come, and e-waste, how can we think about rehabbing older devices and older routers and other things in creative ways, and using the limitations of them not as a, not as a weakness, but perhaps as a, a benefit in situations where you don't need quite as much high-speed access or, you know, as many uh, capabilities to get what you need to get done done. So a tremendous amount of creative reuse potential in this field that we've only scratched the surface of.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's really interesting. You know, I I have an iPhone that's very fancy. And, um, you know, when I was traveling before the pandemic, I would go to places where I couldn't... I couldn't use my iPhone. It wasn't helpful. And I actually needed just a feature phone to be able to access whatever banking services or FinTech was going on, that it was much easier to do that. And so I think that's a really interesting point of view to take when we think about innovation. It's not just about making the brightest, shiniest, newest thing, but really taking something or an idea that people have already thought of and repurposing it for other things or to make it more uh, accessible for folks. So I think that's a really interesting take on that.
2: Yeah, one of the ridiculous objects that I own is this thing that basically looks like an old-fashioned typewriter, and it's just a word processor that has no screen. You can do nothing but write, and it doesn't allow you to cut and paste. You just have to write forward, which is stupid, of course, because I have a thousand computers. But <laughs> um, but because I need to not be distracted, and I want to just write things, I bought this object, and and there are many objects like that out in the world that are just waiting for the, the perfect user. Yeah,
0: definitely. And then I guess another question and, and coming to sort of wrap up this bit of the discussion is just around other solutions. And we've we sort of started talking about this, but who are some folks or what are some things that you've seen of people working towards um, sort of connecting those who are still unconnected in 2030? Who are, where's the vanguard and, and what are they doing and, and how can we sort of support those efforts?
2: I think there's a, there's a sort of a triangle between access to the internet the appropriate interface, and then the ways in which people can use those devices to do the things that they need. There's an example you often bring up. What is the one with the e-readers? Trying to get older people on the internet with tablets? Yes.
0: So there's a a program that we're supporting um, through the United Way of Netherlands and Spain, Um, and it's through our emergency response program. And it really was An opportunity to get folks connected, seniors, so elderly people who are not very well experienced with the internet and internet technologies and hardwares and tablets and phones. But to get them online during the pandemic because they were isolated and and feeling rather lonely, as many of us were um, and still are. And they were connecting them through tablets that were really pared down. And so they had installed software onto the tablets where it was just, you you only have sort of like two buttons to push. There's only two apps that you have on there. One is WhatsApp, which is the one that you're going to use to talk to people. And then there was like another something that was pretty simple to make phone calls or something like that. But the idea that you're sort of removing all the things that are available to you via the internet to make it more accessible is also a really interesting and innovative way to approach connecting folks, because some of us don't actually want all of the things we don't want access to, or we get overwhelmed with all of the bells and whistles of what the technology can do for us. And sometimes we just want it to do that one thing and do it very well. uh, And we're happy with that. And so I think the utility value of technology is really important in thinking about what has value for folks, not necessarily what you can do, Uh, Or what's the the coolest thing you can do with a thing, but actually what are people going to appreciate and and how is it going to improve their lives or make their lives easier? So I think those are the solutions um, also that we want to focus on.
2: There's also a really interesting article in the New York Times recently about Mm -hmm. community mesh networks. Mm -hmm. So that's, again, it's like a, a, a hardware solution, a networking solution. And then there's that local incentive to be connected to people around you, to be volunteering, to like you know, to have a feeling uh, that what you're doing is relevant. So I think there are lots of great examples. And I'm hoping that we, you know, we find out about more of them as people apply. Definitely.
0: Um, well, thank you so much for this, uh, Jessica, for this quick chat and for sort of contextualizing how we're thinking about this and to, to maybe give some clues and some insight into some of our uh, applicants for the program, just about how we're thinking about it so we can demystify a bit of the application process. So Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Shaina, for copying me in on that amazing chat with you and Jessica. I've um, been in meetings with her and I really, really enjoy the way both of you think together. I don't know if that's a thing, but I really enjoy the way your energies and thoughts bounce off each other. I think it's super, super um, interesting. And the one thing that came out is the futurist approach. And that's been said multiple times. And I just wanted to get your take on what, what does that look like to you, the futurist approach of how to connect folks to the internet? Um, I
0: mean, I think there are some, some textbook sort of theoretical definitions around futurist approach that we could get into. But really for me, it's just thinking about and anticipating and designing an internet that we want and that meets the needs of all of us in a future space. So not necessarily something that addresses specifically issues or barriers or problems that we see today, but that's anticipating and trending forward. Um, what can we expect in the future? So what can we do now to mitigate those things in the future? So it's a bit of forecasting and thinking about it from that lens, as opposed to thinking about the right now. Because because there are a myriad of issues right now, which will contribute to problems in the future. But I think there's also things that we're not thinking about um, necessarily, or th- things that don't get as much attention in the future that we really should be thinking about now, so that we don't sort of drive off the cliff.
1: yeah, I'm remembering something that Jessica mentioned about reasons why people won't be connected, and one of them was just because folks are either scared or mistrust whatever the word may be of the internet and then they refuse to connect and You know, I was just thinking about conversations around Facebook specifically, but social media in general and its impact on young girls specifically and, you know, just everyone in general and our attention span and beauty standards and all of these things. And you can understand why someone might not want to be, but that's such a small portion of what the internet is about. And I think for me, in addition to thinking of a futuristic way to connect folks, thinking of, you know, having a futurist approach to the education we give, like Jessica mentioned that in some places, the internet, or was it you, like the internet is Facebook. Like that's what it is. Like it's only as big as Facebook. So I think in addition to connection, like educating people that like, it's not just Facebook, like there's like, there's an entire large thing out there that you can shape and mold to your own liking. Yeah. The
0: possibilities are really endless. And I think if you think about how far we've come in my lifetime, when I think about that, in my mom's lifetime, in my grandma's lifetime, of how far technology has, has moved and how fast it's gone, uh, if you think about 2030, we're, there are going to be things that we never imagined that are going to be happening in 2030. And I think if we're if we're not careful, if we're not thoughtful about what some of the concerns are now, for example, things that you said with people having trust, are people experiencing harm and violence online, if we don't look to sort of mitigate those situations now, they're gonna turn into monsters in 2030 and they may be out of control in in situations where people really don't want to be on the internet, you know? And, And that would be sad because the potential for the internet to change your life and to change my life certainly it has. And it would just be sad to have people choosing not to be a part of that because of harm.
1: You said something about the things that could possibly happen in 2030 are things that we probably can't imagine. Of, But I think they, they are, and they're, they might be in fiction. You know, I think of myself as like a 12-year-old girl with a BlackBerry, right? I had a BlackBerry at 12. And <laughs> the concept of BBM was so cool because it was like, it's not a text message, but it's over Wi-Fi and you can send as many because you would have to pay for text messages. Mm-hmm. So this way you can send as many messages and not worry about it. And I'm thinking about that 12 year old girl, and I'm thinking about something as simple as FaceTime, and I would have never, imagined I would have never imagined that. But I do recall this futuristic cartoon, and the name is not coming to me. Where that's how they spoke to each other. You could see a little image of the person, and I just remember watching that, and I'm like, oh my God, like maybe from like 50 you'll get there. But it's like I'm 24, and you can see a person's face on yeah. the phone and I think it it moves so fast and human beings are adapting well that you don't even realize just how fast it was like at 12 I would have never been able to say oh yeah I'm going to be able to like look at someone's face or I'm going to be able to have an entire job from my house online it's right it's, it's moving so fast it makes me Excited for not just our grantee, our future grantees for this program, but just the future of technology and innovation and what is what is possible. It's it's going to be pretty amazing.
0: Yeah, I think so. And and actually, if you think about it, a lot of the stuff that we're talking about and we're thinking about is probably actually already in the works, right? So it may take ten or twenty years for it to get to um, to the general population and consumers. But those things are actually in in testing phase and, you know, product development phase. I think things like, um, you know, projecting keyboards, you know, uh, holograms and things like that in your phone and stuff. I think people are already making those things. I think they actually, that technology is very close to being in existence if it's not already but it's just going to take a while for it to get through you know the markets and for the press, the people to produce the yeah. stuff and you know in mass um to be able to to have it come to market but i think yeah those things are existing and i think with this particular program and why I just love and really appreciate it working with Jessica and just the, the ways in which we would sort of talk about these things is that it's just so broad and so wide, the possibility, and that also to even reflect back on our earlier conversation about Wikipedia and how, you know, sometimes technology that's intended for good can be used for evil, is that we really have to have people and support collaborations and partnerships of people who are working together to create the future that we actually want to see. And not just, you know, a few people working in the lab, creating these random things that we don't actually know is, is happening today. And we don't know what's happening until it's too late, until it shows up on our iPhone. And you're like, oh, I didn't even, what? Nobody said, nobody told me we were making this. Yeah. I didn't sign up for this. So I think there's, um, yeah, there's some interesting, interesting things and ways to, um, to think about it, and, and I think I'm hopeful that this program really targets and speaks to more public interest technology, more uh, technology that supports civil society, uh, technology for good, not for evil. That really helps all of us get online and get connected to the internet. I think that's, a, that's really where the focus is of this program.
1: Yeah, I think that's I think you summed it up really well when you said technology for good, you know, and purposefully making it for good, not just making a thing and then be like, oh, I guess people can use it for bad. And, you know, thinking about all of it and making sure you put that extra thought in like, no, this is something for good. It's for, you know, public interest, like you said, civil society. Yeah, I'm I'm really, really excited to see the applications that come through and the kinds of things that we get to support and watch grow yeah
0: me too i did want to also say i've been thinking about and this is this is something that's been coming up and i've been writing about it or working on an article for a magazine around different types of approaches to innovation and it was really inspired by jeff bezos and blue origin going to space and i just i just watched that and i was just like so confused about everything i was like what jeff bezos space um, and it just really has me thinking about, you know, what gets celebrated as innovation, what gets funded as innovation, what are the things that, that as a society and as a culture, particularly in the U.S., that we get excited about and, w- and who we support and who we celebrate. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm struggling a bit because while I'm, I appreciate science and I appreciate advancement and technology and development, um, I'm also like sometimes a little bit, Uh, annoyed by other folks who get overlooked in their contributions to, to advancement. And so again, I just really, um, I would support and encourage people who, if you have ideas as crazy and far-fetched as they feel, um, that, that, you're, that you, your ideas are just as valid as the next person. Um, even if you can't code, even if you don't know how to do those things, like your, your contributions in the way that you move through the world are just as valid as everybody else. And so I, I just hope that we really see that come through in this program.
1: Yeah, and you know that's the kind of work that we support and help thrive from all corners. You know, not just the, from from the margins, from from wherever, and just kind of supporting all that stuff and making sure everybody has a fighting chance to innovate.
0: What do you think the, the internet is going to look like in 2030? How how are people connecting to the internet in 2030 is a better question.
1: I am not to sound like a crazy person, but it's definitely, I think it's going to be connected to your body. Definitely. I don't know. Like, I don't want to go as far as like, I don't want to say the M word. Was M? microchip I will not say that word but I do think oh inputs? yeah but you, but this is what I'm saying like that's already
0: happening yeah I think you, you know like that I kind of technology already exists yeah we're just going to repurpose it so you can now connect it to Facebook like people have pacemakers and heart monitors they have you know all kinds of things that are yeah, implanted and these their are body.
1: technological implants into their body it's just left that for you microchips. to put a little wi-fi in them and boom you <laughs> know, <laughs> know like now you can connect to grandpa. but they do but maybe maybe then you can listen to spotify well to your heartbeat do not entice me. And you see, that's where they're going to get me. Because I think with the implant, I might be skeptical. But the moment they're like, feel the music like it's inside of you. I'm like, oh, sign me up. Wait a minute. So I can feel like I'm at a Commodore's concert listening to Not the Commodore's. I do love the Commodore's. Yeah. I How do not even know about the Commodore's? What? I'm an old soul. I do love the Commodore's. Oh, that's awesome.
0: Okay. Yeah. But they might get me. They might get me with that Spotify chip, though. I might get a couple. Of you, them. Might, you might get one of those and plan it. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, let me know. Copy me in on that one. Okay. This has been BCC with Shana. And Paige. Talk to you next time. BCC is supported by the Internet Society Foundation.